Well, welcome to this edition of Rail Group on Air, the podcast series brought to you by Railway Age Railway Track and Structures and International Railway Journal. I'm Bill Vantuono, and I am Editor-in-Chief of Railway Age. Welcome to 2024 to our listeners. I have a really special guest on this podcast, Joe Gio, Vice President Transportation at Norfolk Southern. Joe, uh, welcome. And, you know, you, you come from a, a railroad family starting actually in, in, in New Jersey that we share as a home state. Tell us about that. Well, first and foremost, thanks for having me, Bill. Um, it's a, it's an honor and a privilege to be on the podcast. Um, but yeah, I'll just jump right in. So um, I'm a real, I'll just start with I'm a railroad kid from birth. Um, I spent most of my life in Eport Yard um, as, a, as a young kid. My grandfather was the uh, general chairman for the machinists. Um, almost all my family was a mechanical when I was growing up. So I had six uncles, my grandfather and my dad all worked in the mechanical shops at Eport to start off with, with Central Jersey. And of course, as Conrail kind of started to come in in, in, in 81 and Central Jersey started to unwind, uh, they kind of got spread to the wind a little bit. My dad uh, moved and was running the, the mechanical shops in Bayhead, New Jersey South. Um, those got kind of consolidated back into the greater, they, they kind of, trim those off. So he had to move back to Elizabeth. Um, so I spent a lot of time in the mechanical shops. My grandfather drove a fuel tender for the last three or four years of his career. It was a really, I would say it made a huge imprint on me. It's something I knew from a very early age I wanted to do forever. Um, I've always been in love with the railroad. I'm a student of the railroad. I love the industry and it all came from those early years of being around my family members. That's quite a heritage. You know, you mentioned Bayhead. Of course, that's today New Jersey Transit's terminal at, uh, on the North Jersey coastline. And your grandfather probably saw the last of steam in yep. those days, both uh, CNJ and, and PRR steam in the late 1950s. That's quite a history. Eport, Conrail shared assets today, uh, mm-hmm. jointly owned and operated by um, uh, Norfolk Southern and, and CSX. You're one of those people who's loved the industry from the get-go and, and a big part of it. At Norfolk Southern, there is a group called Performance Excellence, and that is housed within the operations department. It touches uh, many different teams uh, throughout the railroad. The day-to-day activities, of course, focused on safety, supporting operational excellence, and then um, just working on best practices. Tell us a bit about some of your day-to-day activities. I mean, first and foremost, you you talked about everything starts with safety for Norfolk Southern. And what we're doing now, um, obviously, Alan has been very vocal about a, a better path forward, a better way forward for Norfolk Southern. Um, and what that really starts with is our people, right? We've got 10,000 craft colleagues in transportation. Those folks are looking to be inspired to our transformative vision, right? What, what you know, service productivity and growth looks like. So every day, uh, my role is to both inspire and create the right altitude for the other leaders to remove roadblocks for those 10,000 folks that are doing that. That sounds like a big task, but it's really a day-to-day, minute-by-minute kind of aggregation of small wins type of business. Um, that's that's kind of the stage we're in now. It's helping folks see how great we can be, and we we have phenomenally talented railroaders in Norfolk Southern. That inspiration part is really step one in improving our safety let's call it our performance excellence overall long-term. Part of that is providing tactical support. What are some of those uh, those things that you do in terms of tactical support? 
Well, we knew coming into 2023 that we needed to consider continuous improvement more directly, right? I mean, the industry has changed a lot in the last, let's call it five years in particular, but let's even as much as 10. Um, and we've got to be leaner to meet our customers' expectations. We've got to be consistent and predictable every single day, right? That reliable, resilient service is what we need to have. So performance excellence creates the envelope for that. So there's three main verticals, right? We've got technology and inventory management, and we've got operating practices, which you've mentioned, which is the real on the ballast line process adherence. And we've got data governance and data optimization long-term. We're a manufacturing business, right? I mean, think about our hump terminals. We put 2,000 cars a day through some using gravity, and we do the same thing every day. The same trains get built. How we get better and better at that really requires us to think lean principles and Six Sigma employment. And that's what performance excellence brings. It allows the operators to operate. Give an example. Right now, we've we've started on, on these performance build sheets for outbound originating trains at our merchandise terminals. That's a really hard thing to conceptualize if you're in the day-to-day, -day, like putting train lists together, what's on the train, is it the right car, the right trip, the right day? Performance Excellence fills that gap. They facilitate the development and implementation of the process so that the folks that are doing the work that are grinding it in the terminals every day, they're about adoption and improvement. What sorts of technologies are being employed here? There's all types of you know, yard management systems and yep. the technological evolution in this industry has been uh, nothing short of remarkable. One of the interesting things about technology in the rail industry is like, what approach do we intend to take? And I'm really proud of Norfolk Southern because I spent, I spent 18 years at a different railroad, great railroad, lots of cool technology changes. But our CIO, Fred Ellers at Norfolk Southern, he thought a little bit further beyond that. So we have a technology called Yard Planner, which is this amazing product that is truly uh, artificial intelligence for our hump terminals. It's fully deployed at Birmingham right now um, as our first location. And it's exciting. I mean, I've sat in many towers with lots of yard masters who are really good at what they do, but it's incredibly challenging to look out 24 hours and figure out how to stack every block in 56 tracks so when you pull the next train, it's lined up perfectly. Yard Planner does that. I mean, and that, that technology alone, and we're the only organization, only class one railroad using it right now, um, and it's really exciting. I mean, that, that's just one example of technology, I think, and how it's advancing to a place where it makes us more productive, it makes us more efficient, and ultimately our customers can count on and be predictable of what we're going to do tomorrow. Was that developed in-house, the uh, yard planner? No, uh, it's a, it's in a partnership with Wabtec. Yeah, which did some work on your uh, traffic control uh, yep. system. I remember reporting on that years ago in some of some of the uh, movement planning software. This is all tied in with network movement planning, I guess. Yeah, it, I mean, that's a great point. Think about UTCS, which is our movement planner system. Um, right. UTCS focuses on the districts. It has all the links in it, but none of the nodes. And what Yard Planner does is it fills that hole. It says, okay, if I'm going from Croxton, New Jersey to Chicago, how do I algorithmically plan to have 200 train meets across, you know, all through Pennsylvania, through Ohio, into, into Indiana, without knowing what's going to happen at the production facilities in between? And that's where Yard Planner really feels a strategic and important place for us to be reliable and resilient. So I understand that part of your short-term focus is on standardizing best practices and building or getting standard operating procedures uh, embedded. Tell us a bit mm -hmm. about that. What does that involve? I'm going to say it's our ground game when it comes to how we're going to deliver our service long-term. 
we are at every yard that we have and we've got you know hundreds based on relative size but let's call it we have 40 major terminals in size that's including the six hump terminals we have and our you know let's call it our 34 top flat switching terminals um, and and i'm sure don't leave out the intermodal ramps they're also a part of this uh, but essentially what we're doing now is we're documenting the usage of our capacity the best possible use that doesn't mean there won't be adjustments but how many blocks do we are we going to build it to humps what the specific size of those blocks is going to be what kind of work events we think we can accommodate right those are all being done at every single terminal mapped out very specifically and then we apply our resources to it okay how many jobs do we need to have what trains are we going to build what do we expect those jobs to build every day and then ultimately safely execute on that plan so most importantly we can be predictable when you really think about what it means to kind of have a standard operating practice it means i know what's going to happen tomorrow so our customers who are shipping a car from Chicago to Florida through Atlanta, they're watching our car tracing thinking, oh, I know what's going to happen to this car. It's going to end up in Atlanta and they'll be there for 14 hours and ultimately they'll end up on this train and head out of town. That's what the standard operating procedure gets us. So that regardless of the skill of the operator, it doesn't matter how new I am, really how long I've been at the railroad, I can execute the same result day in and day out, regardless of seniority or, or skill level. Uh, at what level do you get involved or does your team get involved with training? That's become a real focus at Norfolk Southern. Very specialized training programs that we've reported on. And, uh, and of course, getting new people involved, getting new, you know, recruiting new people and then training yep. and retaining them. That's a, a challenge in itself. Yeah, and, and one of the things that we've added in 2023 um, to enhance our training, especially with the influx of, of newer folks that we've recruited and hired, um, we've got a really robust conductor training mentor program now. Yes. And one of the things that I, I get involved in, it's not quite daily, but I'd say definitely weekly, is there's leaders inside of that conductor training mentor program that we have a regular weekly engagement with, like get feedback, close the loop on here's a new idea, here's something that we've determined, here's a better way to train. And that includes just for example, how often are our training center at McDonough, like what's the right, how many weeks do we go there to start with? And then do we come out in the field so we can actually apply it, you know, kind of get it in our mind how it actually looks. We've actually adapted all of that based on our conductor training mentors feedback to us to make it more effective. So um, that's kind of the level I live at is in the strategy and overall deployment of an effective training product. And of course, my general managers, my division superintendents, they're they're getting closer to that level where it's like, okay, what's the best way to train on, let's say, the coastal division? How many trips should I take to, let's say, Macon? Those are things that they're kind of dialing in to make sure it's a repetitive, consistent output. Because I think we know the trickiest part about training is everybody learns a little different and they learn at a little different pace. So our future state is thinking about how do we adapt our learning to the person involved and not necessarily some blanket system that everybody gets it exactly the same way. I wanted to just drill down a little bit into um, operating rules. A lot of people in this industry, uh, you know, they're either trained in G Corps, General Code of Operating Rules, and here in the Northeast, we have NORAC. Uh, sure. And um, so Norfolk Southern and CSX, how much overlap is there at Norfolk Southern in terms of the employees having to be well-versed in both G Corps and, and NORAC? And how does that uh, figure into training? Not numerically specific, but there is a lot of overlap, right? And we have major, several major interchanges with the CSX. We have several major Western to me now interchanges, Chicago, St. Louis, Memphis, New Orleans. 
there's overlap all over the place. The, the thing that's really important, right, is to recognize that generally speaking and not having a ton of exposure to G-Core in my life and knowing G-Core very well, like, the rule books are essentially the same. They're called different things, right? Like it, mm-hmm. we, we have three-step, yeah. the G-Core rules called in between one of our Western class one railroads has the red zone, but it's generally all exactly the same. Like how do we, yeah. how do you announce yourself? you know, go through all the rules. So I think it's very intuitive. Our rule books are different, but they're not so different that um, that it doesn't make sense because the operating rules obviously are, are the ones that need to be similar. It's the safety rules that can be kind of tricky. And I say that because they're individual to each property, right? So for example, at Norfolk Southern, like other railroads, we get an off movement equipment safely every day. We have a Western railroad that doesn't do that. The key is like making sure that our leaders are educated when they're observing and supporting the behavior of other rail carriers, that we're educated enough that it's about safety. And I I can't say this enough, and not about necessarily exactly the rules. If what Mm -hmm. I observed made me uncomfortable, that's something I need to have a conversation about, even if it doesn't necessarily fall into the exact bucket of quote unquote against the rules. Right. To that point, Bill, I'll just add one thing if I can. That's why we're shifting our training, our, our safety focus away from what we would traditionally call rules checks. The mm-hmm. FRA requires that we want, like we observe certain things and we're going to a performance standard engagement. And a rules check historically, if we're being honest, was I'm at a distance observing what you're doing. Does it follow the rules or not? I've done it in my career. A lot of railroaders have done it, leaders. The new performance standard engagement is a two-hour ballast line, shoulder to shoulder, we're going to pause the work. We're going to talk about it. Then I'm going to be there for the work performed. Then we're going to pause again at the end and we're going to talk about it. And all throughout that, we're going to talk about risk and behavior and how we can support each other so the leaders learn and the crews can learn and we can communicate with each other. And it's less about safety too and more about this is a team where we're trying to keep each other safe. Now, you are based in Atlanta, but you must spend a lot of time out in, out in the field. How much time do you, do you actually spend out there? You must, must be quite a bit. Let's call it an average of at least three days a week. I try, to, I try to do as much administrative stuff as I can Monday morning, and I'm generally on a flight somewhere or driving Monday afternoon. I mean, I'm really blessed in the fact that Norfolk Southern's dense. I love the density of it. So I can be in Macon. I can be in Birmingham. I can be in Chad at a hump terminal in two hours. I would say in the last three months, I, I can't imagine a place I, I haven't been. I would say every day I'm making an attempt to be in the field because people want to hear what our vision is. They want to know that we're serious. They want to understand that we're consistent. And ultimately, change management's hard. And we're growing into a better railroad in our strategic vision's never been achieved or accomplished by anyone. So it's really important for our craft team to be like, all right, is, is, is this VPT serious? Why do I know that? Okay, he's got his boots on. He's got gloves. Those gloves are already dirty. And by the way, he's willing to be out here. You know, I can think of a story. I was in Norfolk, in Portlock, in our intermodal facility, and riding a job where the engineer was like, all right, it's, it's nice to have somebody who used to be a locomotive engineer on the train because we're just talking about, you know, hey, what do you do here? And, you know, it's been a long time since I pulled the throttle. Well, maybe someday you come back and do it again. I think those are the engagements that matter. Yeah, and and you have that background. So you, you were a locomotive engineer for how long, Joe? So I started as a conductor um, and I became an engineer in January of 06. And I did that for a few years before I took my first train master job. So you have really, uh, for at least from my perspective, the best of both worlds. You know, you're VP of transportation, but you're you're there with your boots on the ground. And as you said, your your gloves that aren't squeaky clean. That's right. Well, that must be a good feeling. Satisfying. I think the interesting part about it is perspective. 
in our vision, we're trying to do something that's never been achieved. Well, to do, you know, doing some version of the same thing and getting markedly different results is illogical. So what I think is really helping with this is our team wants to see somebody that's credible, consistent, and authentic. Is the person that's at the top of the transportation organization looking out for my interest and how do I know that's true? In issues like, you know, when we talk about, uh, you know, availability and attendance and quality of life, you know, it's a lot mm -hmm. easier for me to talk about having been first out on the extra board, not being able to sleep for 12 hours because I'm waiting for that phone to ring. And then hearing that when I'm having that conversation with an engineer or the stress of, Maybe I'm not going to pass my locomotive test. Hey, do you remember? Oh, yeah, I remember that. And I remember being stressed out about my last train ride. And that's such an easier conversation to have when somebody's like, this person I'm talking to actually understands. Not the theory of it, but has lived it. And by the way, my wife has moved 15 times. My kids have been exposed to that. Like, they know what it means when I say, I hear you, that that's true. What do you find with the newest generation of railroaders or the craft people? Their expectations seem to be a little different. And this is something that has been talked about at all levels of the industry. You know, quality of life is very important. It is difficult to make adjustments for quality of life concerns in a, an organization or a type of business that operates 24-7. I mean, this conversation's everywhere. It's, I mean, it's not just forget about like the global business scope of like how one of our major constraints is our ability to actually provide our labor sweat capital to actually achieving it. One of the things I think is most interesting to me is I thought about this the other day when I was having this conversation. I, as a young conductor, I worked with an engineer that said, kid, every dollar you lay down, I'm going to pick up. And those guys and gals worked every day. They never missed a day of work. It was amazing. Sometimes you thought, wow, how am I ever going to work this hard? The folks, you know, I'm talking about the folks that were retiring in the early 2000s that started in the 70s. You know, now we have a workforce and this is culturally way outside the rail. We have a workforce that wants to leverage their job and they want to like what they do. They want to be connected to it. I think that's a big difference. Right. It isn't like a punch in, punch out. We have a workforce now that we're leading that like if I don't believe in what you're saying, this might not be for me. It's not just about the paycheck. So that's why it's so important what we talked about. It's like we spent a lot more time describing the vision, describing what it means to be customer-centric, operations-driven. Like that means something to the folks that we're hiring today as opposed to the past where it was like, I'm going to work every day. My family relies on me. I have self, like let's face it, generational change. I have self-worth associated with the hours I put in. Now we have folks that, hey, I want to be connected to the vision. I do want to get paid well, but I also want to use that money to spend time doing the things I like, being around my family. I'll just say, I'm going to talk for Joe personally. I think coming up and being very competitive in a very competitive industry for two decades, I lost sight of that for, for the early part of my career. It was like, how do I, get, I wanted to be a superintendent so bad. That's all I cared about. And I wanted to be a superintendent. I, I saw that job and thought, man, if I could ever get that job, because my dad was a superintendent, like I, I wanted that so bad. And now I look at it and think, I do, I want to be a great VPT, but I also want to meet, be with my grandson who's four months old. I'm not saying that I never, I never thought about my family. I'm just saying like, it's definitely raised itself in most people's value stream to where like, I need to do both. And if this lifestyle I have that's really challenging, doesn't provide that ability, I'm willing to make less money and get both. So again, it goes back to great vision, inspire and connect. And man, you got to treat people like individuals, Bill. That's what we got to do, too. This isn't engineers and conductors and machinists. It's Bill and Sarah and what matters to that person and make sure the daycare works out for them and 
hey, I've got these medical concerns that my mother's going through. You've got to care more about that in today's mm-hmm. environment. Back in 2006, it was like, you better be at work. That's somebody else's problem. So it's quality of life, but it's also feeling that you're contributing to something that's worth doing. Yes. I can see that the work that I'm doing on the railroad, whether it's operating a train or maintaining track, what I do is contributing to something good to not only benefit me, but to benefit society, which I think a lot of younger people these days are really concerned about. They want to feel like they're making a difference. It's important for the industry to show how important railroads are and that you can make a difference by working for a railroad. We have such a rich history. The railroad industry is almost like none other in the way it's contributed to the growth and success of the United States. Being a, I'll call it a rail fan, there's lots of words for it, but being a rail fan myself, I will say I experienced one of the pain points of when we were when we were partially deregulated during staggers, right, and Conrail took over, my dad had to drive two and a half hours to work every day. One of the things that we need to do as leaders is we need to protect this great thing we have, this industry, this railroad industry, to make sure we're serving our customers well, that we're serving our country well, that we're doing the things we commit to doing, because if not, we run the risk of having that change over time in ways that's really not beneficial to anyone. And that's where I think the things that happened coming out of the bankruptcies of the late 60s and 70s into staggers in 1981, we have to make sure we remember those lessons. Those are really important lessons for us because our industry is so darn important to the way that this country runs. Not connecting to that has a lot to do with also the fact that we got to get better at talking about our history. I'm a fan too. There's a bit of a negative connotation. Oh, you're a rail fan. Well, uh, I like to think of myself as an enthusiast. Yeah, yeah. For <laughs> and sure. I think a lot of us <laughs> in this industry are enthusiasts. You know, we uh, we we love the industry and uh, we we love what it does. Looking ahead, long-term goals, uh, there are a few things that uh, come across here. Uh, Standardize and then optimize, uh, be a constant learning organization. And then I think probably most important, uh, on top of continuous improvement, be proactive with adapting. I think that's the key there. So your your thoughts on the long-term vision here. What do we do? I mean, what is our base actual function? I think about this, and we talk about a lot on our team, is we provide a service. That's what we sell, right? We sell a service. We move goods from point A to point B, and we do it with a lot, where we move a ton, a gross ton miles a year from point A to point B. We've got to understand what our customers' needs are. Ed Elkins, our CMO, says this really well. Like, we've got to show what value we provide long-term. And we've got to map that out over the next 20, 30, 40 years. And in all of our activities, especially around like what we do in transportation is we've got to be so predictable in our production outcomes that we're competitive. Our average line haul is 300 miles. So there's competition there. There's competition in modalities for us. Mm -hmm. We've got to be very predictable. I would offer a industry-leading intermodal product Um, And there's tons of reasons why that is, but our franchise is really based in our schedule, right? We have the most scheduled network of all the class one railroads, the density of the total schedules that are achieved in a day. That's our competitive advantage. So that's why our ability to deliver on that schedule long-term, then get our customers feedback. When you say, you know, the constant learning organization, let's say I'm talking to a paper customer. What does your company look like in 15 years? Where do you see yourself in 15 years. And then we've got to grow and adapt with all of our customers to that. The other point that it kind of comes to mind when you say that is we have lots of different business types. Very important, right? Getting on a train at an origin for grain and taking it to a destination for grain and dumping it is critical to what we do. But that's very different 
than getting a card interchange at Elkhart from Chicago to Elkhart and then handling it through the organization, touching it multiple times till it gets delivered somewhere in Virginia. We have to make sure that each one of our business students is growing in value for those customers' needs. And it all starts with being predictable, reliable, and resilient. Because I've heard Alan talk about it a lot. There's no one in the industry to date that has not fell victim to some cycle of degradation over two, three years, right? We have a great year, two great years, then year three, polar vortex happens and we, we suffer. That's what the future looks like for us, insulating ourselves from that service degradation so our customers can count on us year after year. Oh, we know in the wintertime it gets tough. That can't be our future state. And in terms of weather, that's becoming tougher with extreme temperatures and extreme conditions. Uh, uh, we see this every day. Uh, I'm sure you would agree. I find the railroads mo the most resilient in terms of being able to deal with extreme weather events, whether it's floods or hurricanes or you know landslides, uh, you know, and to recover very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. These events are not becoming every once in a while. These are almost monthly. Yes. If you think about it, that's challenging. Yes. You're 100% correct. What's interesting is we know that those things are going to keep happening. We're going to have hurricanes in New Orleans. That's a guaranteed future outcome someday. I think where we've struggled as an industry and what we're working on really hard with performance excellence, transportation, mechanical, everywhere in the operating space, my peers are doing this, is to make sure that those are the only exceptions we have to deal with and that we're driving out the inefficiencies and unpredictability in our own production models so that when that happens, we have a very robust series of outcomes that we know. For example, I, I'll give you just one clean example, making sure we have a winter plan for Elkhart and Bellevue in Conway that says, if the temperature reaches minus 30, minus 20, and the snowfall reaches 24 inches, this is the plan we put in place. We don't talk about it at that point, we just engage it. That's why I think the railroads in Norfolk Southern in particular are getting better at adapting to these, these challenges. You had mentioned customers and customer service uh, numerous times. How much interface do you personally or does your team have with customers, direct interface? I have quite a bit. Um, I'll just say really in particular, you know, just recently, we've, I've had a lot of opportunity to meet some of our senior leaders at our major ag customers, our major intermodal customers. In our industrial product space, you know, our boxcars, there's folks shipping a few cars a year, right? So there's five cars of line. That's 100% part of what I engage in every day because in order for us to be the best transportation team possible, I've got to understand those challenges, not third hand. We have a great marketing team, great marketing leaders and commercial leaders that are so tuned into our customers' needs. But I can't just hear that from them. I've got to hear that from myself. I've got to have my general managers of the regions hear that for themselves. We kind of adapted our 2024 goals, especially with the senior leadership ranks, division superintendents and off. Those types of customer engagements, that's the future. It's about being at the ballast line and understanding what they need and not just getting it secondhand. And also working with your first mile, last mile partners, the uh, the class mm. twos and uh, and class three railroads and the switching and terminal. That's an important part of the whole uh, equation sure. here. And my partnership to that exact point, I mean, I'm sure it's everyone is aware that we brought in Stefan Loeb, um, was a WACO senior leader, just an amazing first mile, last mile thinker. The way he thinks about first mile, last mile, it's bringing a short line mentality in executing service at the last mile and first mile to a major class one road for the first time. Just in the past few weeks, we're talking about how do we make sure that we're there for the request, not thinking about it two weeks ago. Hey, I, I think I can load 10 more cars today. Oh, well, I've got 10 more cars. 
that's where Stefan's driving us to. His involvement, his coming to Norfolk Southern has been a huge benefit to our customers and to me as a leader, because he's got me thinking differently about not the same old, get the car to the final serving yard. It goes out on a Tuesday. Stefan's like, what if we can get it there on a, on a Monday? And that's when the load's there. Great. Help me think about that. Joe Geo, thanks so much for joining us. We'll probably be touching base with you uh, at some point. I'd like to spend some time with you, uh, if possible, out in the field, maybe. Sure. Uh, I like being out in the field as a hopefully an informed observer. <laughs> <laughs> Keep up the good work. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a very safe day. Yes, we'll touch base soon. I really, really appreciate you having me. Thank you again. Thank you.